This morning, church, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 41 to 44. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 12, I'll begin reading at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of her, out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had. To live on. Heavenly Father, we pray that today you will think with my mind and speak with my lips and overtake my body. And I pray that you will help me to preach in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout his ministry, Jesus offered numerous eyebrow raising comments. After his interaction with the rich young ruler, it is Jesus who said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. On another occasion, Jesus said to his disciples, there are many who are first that will be last and many who are last who will be first. And elsewhere, uh, Jesus said that he who wants to save his life must lose it. And he who loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. There are numerous occasions when Jesus makes a statement that causes people to wonder and ponder what Jesus means by the statement he just made. Such is the case in the story that I just read for you. Jesus sat opposite the place where individuals came and gave their money in the temple treasury. He watched how a poor widow gave an offering that was worth less than a fraction of a penny. And Jesus said that she gave more than all the others. I don't know very many economists that would agree with Jesus. I don't know very many businessmen or businesswomen that would agree with Jesus. And if I can be real honest with you, I don't know very many preachers who on the surface would agree with Jesus. You come to this story and you hear what Jesus has to say and you think to yourself, what in the world is he driving at? Mark tells us that Jesus sat opposite the place where people came and placed their money. That system sounds a little bit different than the method that we use here at First Baptist Pelham. Here at First Baptist Pelham on the first Sunday of every month, we have ushers and servants of the church that come forward with offering plates. Those ushers make their way to the first person on the first pew. They give them the offering plate. They urge them to put their offering in that plate and then gently pass it to the person seated next to them. Once it gets to the end of the row, then another usher or servant of the church is standing there He takes the plate and then gives it to the first person on the pew behind them. 
And this uh, practice and exercise continues until the offering plates have zigzagged their way all the way through the sanctuary, giving you ample opportunity to give joyously and generously unto the Lord. But once that money is collected on that first Sunday of every month, it's placed in a locked box and then later in Sunday afternoon designated individuals come and they count the money and prepare it for deposit. On Monday morning our financial secretary reconciles those deposit slips and then throughout the week as additional income comes into the church another deposit is made on Thursday. That's typically the way we take up an offering and we get it to the bank. But most of the time Our method is even more discreet than that. Because even though we only pass the offering plate once a month, we still take up an offering every single week. And we encourage you as the generous faith family to place your offering in one of the offering boxes. There are about 12 of them located throughout the church campus. Two of them are located on the walls as you exit the sanctuary. There are 10 others that are located throughout the campus. And week by week, month by month, you as the people of God, you come and you place your offering in that offering box. And then the process is pretty similar. uh, That an individual or a couple of individuals come and they take the money out of those boxes. They put it into a locked box and then counters come on Sunday afternoon. They prepare the deposit. It's made and then on Monday morning, our financial secretary reconciles those deposit slips and then throughout the week, additional income comes in and we make an additional deposit on Thursday. But still, for some, the process is even more discreet than that because many of you give electronically. And so the only people who know how much you give or when you give, it's, it's you, it's the bank, And it's the financial secretary. That's it. Our method is very organized. It's sophisticated, I guess. It's very discreet. It's it's very common. It's something that we do week in and week out. There are numerous checks and balances in the process to secure accountability all throughout from start to finish. But that process doesn't sound anything like what's described in Mark chapter 12. No, in Mark chapter 12... Jesus positions himself at the place where everybody came to the temple to give their money in the temple treasury. Before individuals could leave the temple complex, they had to walk through the court of women. And located right on the outskirts of the court of women were 13 brass trumpet-shaped receptacles. And individuals would come and they would place their money in those trumpet-shaped brass receptacles. Uh, Some of them were designated gifts. That's what we would call it. There were there was one that was called the frankincense offering. There was a, another uh, brass trumpet-shaped receptacle that was called wood for sacrifice offering. There was still another that was called gold for the temple offering. Six of the 13 were simply labeled free will offerings. You and I would call that the general fund. And so individuals would come and they could give to one, two, three, all 13 if they wanted to. And they would place their money in those receptacles. And everybody and anybody could watch who was walking past and how much money they gave. The NIV has a very sterile translation when it says that they put or placed their money in the temple treasury. 
That word for put is the Greek word ballo. From that Greek word ballo, we get the English word ball. It literally means to throw. And so I want you to imagine with me that that's exactly what these individuals would do. They would come up to those brass trumpet-shaped receptacles and they would throw their coins and currency into that container. Now you know that in those days there were no checks, very little, if any, paper money. Everything was coined currency. And so According to the Roman government, the heavier the coin, the more expensive, the more valuable the coin was. And so you can well imagine that individuals would come up and with all their might and with all their gusto, they would wind up and they would throw it. They would throw the coins as it clinked and clattered all the way around that brass trumpet-shaped receptacle until it made its way spiraling down to the very bottom box. You think to yourself, well, wouldn't that make a lot of noise? Exactly. That's the point. That's why they did it. They did it so it would make a lot of noise, so it would draw a great deal of attention, so that everybody could hear just how much money they were giving to God. They would bring the heavy coins, the the valuable coins, and they would throw it with all of their strength in the hopes that it would cling and clatter as many times as possible so that it would echo through not only the court of women, but through the entire temple mount. So that if you were somewhere else in the temple and you heard the clinging and clattering, you thought to yourself, well, God surely has blessed some individual. I don't know who it is. Let me go see. Let me go take a look at who gave that much money. And not only has God blessed that individual, but that person is so good, so awesome, so generous. They've given all that money back to God. They ought to be applauded. They ought to be given places of prominence. They ought to be given places of of importance in the life of, of our religion, in the life and work of the temple imagine with me when you were younger and you would go to a pond or a lake and you learned the art of skipping a rock you knew which rock to get you knew how to hold it you knew it was all in the flicking of the wrist you knew how to throw it to get three four five maybe even six skips before it plopped to the bottom of the lake And as a child, you looked at that and you thought to yourself, now that's a thing of beauty. And if God ever gives me children, I'm going to teach them how to skip a rock like that. In the same way, these individuals, they knew how to throw the currency to get three, four, five different skips and spirals, clinks and clanks. And as they washed it, they sat back and thought, that's a thing of beauty. It's all in the way you hold the currency. It's all in the flick of the wrist. It's all in your approach, how you come up to that brass-shaped receptacle. That's a thing of beauty. And if God ever gives me children, I'm going to show them how to properly throw their coins into the temple treasury. This is the chaos that Jesus saw. Jesus came and positioned himself opposite the place where everybody came through to make their contribution. And I just have a holy hunch that when some of those rich fat cats saw that it was Jesus seated there, they really wound up to throw it hard. 
I mean, they thought to themselves, that's the holy rabbi from Galilee. Just a few days ago, he came into the sacred city of Jerusalem to the thunderous applause of men. I mean, they were laying down their cloaks. They were waving palm branches. Some have said, he is the Messiah. And so he's there. Boy, let me get loose. Let me really wind this thing up really good so I can really fling it hard and get as many skips as possible because certainly that will impress Jesus, the rabbi. And Jesus just sat there. Stone-faced, no nonverbals, no movement. He just watched. And then all of a sudden, Mark says that a poor widow came. She gave two small copper coins. It was worth only a fraction of a penny. Not very valuable, not really expensive, the Greek word is lepta. That describes the coin. It's, it's worth uh, one-eighth of a penny. One one-hundredth of a denarius. It's insignificant. It barely had a Roman inscription upon it. It wasn't worth the government's time. I mean, they, they did stamp it. But it, but it wasn't even worth it because it was so worthless and light and insignificant. This widow came up and all she had were two lepta, two very small, lightweight copper coins. Had she given nothing, nobody would have criticized her. Had she placed one of the coins in the receptacle and kept one coin for herself, everybody would have understood. But this woman comes and she gives both of the two very small copper coins. You had to listen carefully to hear it spiral down to the bottom. It was so lightweight. There was no clinging. There was no clattering. Nobody saw what this woman did. Nobody cared what this woman did. Except Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus perked up. He turned to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and said, guys, did you see that? Uh, see what? Did you see that woman? Yeah, Jesus, we saw that woman. Did she give anything? Because I couldn't hear anything. Now, those individuals over there that just went through the line, <laughs> they gave a lot. Did you hear all the clattering and clinging of the coins as they made their way down to the bottom? And they gave not just in one or two of the receptacles, but they gave in, in almost all of them, maybe all 13. I mean, it was echoing and ringing. Yes, Jesus, we heard that, but what are you talking about, this woman? No, we didn't pay any attention to her. And nobody paid attention to her except Jesus. And then Jesus said, this woman has given more than all the others. Now, either Jesus is saying that this woman has given more than any single individual of the others have given, or what Jesus is saying is that what she gave is greater in sum and totality than all the others put together. Regardless, the disciples would have sat there with a raised eyebrow and said, Jesus, what do you mean? 
This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. It's not good economics. Jesus, I don't know if anybody would agree with you because she didn't give more than any other single individual and she certainly didn't give more than everybody else combined. Jesus, what is going on? And what is Jesus driving at? What's his point? It would seem to me that Jesus is hitching together this idea of giving and living because our giving is inextricably tied to our living. Let me say it this way. How we give to God reveals something significant about how we live before God. How we give to God reveals something significant about how we live before God. Jesus is giving us an example of if a person gives with a sense of dependency upon God, that person will probably live the Christian life with a dependency upon God. If a person gives fully trusting that God will provide, I bet that person will live fully trusting that God will provide. If a person gives sacrificially, then that person will probably, in all likelihood, live the Christian life sacrificially. And how a person gives reveals something significant about how they live. Jesus is hitching together these ideas of giving and living. It's not so much how much you give, but how you give that makes the difference. Jesus is emphasizing attitude even more than action. Now, if it's true in the positive, sense it must also be true in the negative sense that if a person gives only for the applause of men then that individual will probably live the Christian life only for the applause of men if a person gives out of religious obligation then that individual will live the Christian life out of religious obligation. If a person gives out of self-sufficiency that person will live out of self-sufficiency. How you give reveals something significant about how you live. These two things have always been tied together and here when you come to Mark chapter 12 Jesus personifies this reality. Do you see this woman? Because how she gives is revealing much about how she lives. Do you see all the wealthy people as they came through? How they give reveals a lot about how they live. Jesus gives further commentary. He said that the rich individuals, they give out of their wealth. But she, she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything. All she had to live on. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that sometimes people give what they can spare. But this woman gave what she could not afford. She gave everything. I find it interesting. And it is rather significant for us to note. When Jesus gives us this teaching. It's in the middle of Passover week. This is the last week of his life on planet earth. Just a few days earlier, Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey to the thunderous applause of the crowd. 
They were declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many of them were saying, he is the political Messiah. He is the one that's going to overthrow the Roman rule. He is the long-awaited anointed one of God. But Jesus knew that a few days from now, all those people that shouted Hosanna, every single one of them will shout crucify him, crucify him. Jesus was well aware that these disciples that were clinging to him like super glue, that in just a few days, every single one of them would fall away from him. And in these last days, Jesus every day is going to the temple to teach. He's a floating classroom. He goes to one area, he attracts a crowd and attracts questions. He answers the question, then he moves over to another area, attracts a different crowd with different questions. He is a floating theological classroom. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, the Herodians and the Pharisees are attracted to Jesus. What's interesting about the Herodians and the Pharisees is that they can't get along at all. They can't agree on anything, but they could agree that Jesus was public enemy number one. And for a long time, they've been trying to get rid of Jesus. So here in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they come together and they say to Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? Nobody likes paying taxes. Do you like paying taxes? Most people believe we pay too much in taxes. Most people are under the assumption that the government is gouging us and that they're not managing well the taxes that we give to them in the first place. That's nothing new. That's not American. In fact, it goes well beyond every nation, every generation, every uh, kingdom. Everybody has hated and despised the notion of paying taxes. The first century was no different than the 21st century. So Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? Should we be exempt? Should you be exempt? Jesus says, show me one of your Roman coins whose inscription is on it. Caesar, came the reply. Then Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. There was a hushed, quiet calm that came over the crowd. In those few words, Jesus was saying, yes, as followers of God, as children of the Lord, we do need to do our right. We do need to do our responsibility and our due diligence. And we ought to pay taxes. We ought not to skirt that. But also, I want you to notice what Jesus is implying. You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. And don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. Did you hear him say that? Because we always get in trouble. Every culture gets in trouble when they give to Caesar what belongs to God. Life belongs to God. We get in trouble when we give life to Caesar. Because when Caesar is given life, then Caesar can tell us when life begins. And some people of any generation can form laws that kill the unborn. Friend, 
We ought to give God what is God's and don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. God is the one who instituted marriage. He's the one who crafted it. He's the one who created it. He's the one who established it. He's the one who gets to define it. Oh, but when some cultures render unto Caesar that which belongs to God, then Caesar can define what marriage is. And you may not believe me or not, but if Caesar gets to define what marriage is, the definition may not be very biblical in its approach. So when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's, by implication he's saying, don't get the two mixed up. Don't give to Caesar what belongs to God. That's why he silenced the crowd. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. The Sadducees approached Jesus. They said, Jesus, uh, we've got a theological question about marriage. You and I both know the law. We know that according to the law of Moses... That if a woman is married and she is barren without children and her husband dies, but that husband had a brother, then that brother is to assume his proper responsibility and take uh, his sister-in-law as his bride. So let's uh, just have a hypothetical scenario uh, where a, a woman is barren and her husband dies and that husband had seven brothers. She goes through all seven of those brothers and not one of them gives her a, a, a child. When she is born, uh, when she dies uh, on the last day at resurrection, who is she going to belong to? Now, what's interesting about this theological question is that the Sadducees don't even believe in resurrection. They don't even believe about the last day. They don't believe in a physical bodily resurrection. And yet, they ask this theological question about the resurrection. And that's why Jesus answers all, see, you're focused on the God of the dead, but ours is the God of the living because ours is a God who truly has resurrection. And Jesus, by implication, is saying what's going to take place three days after the crucifixion of Christ, he will be physically and bodily and visibly raised from the dead. So Sadducees, you don't need to be sad, you see. You need to rejoice because there is something called the resurrection of the dead. Jesus answered their question and then he floated on to another group. There was, in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, a teacher of the law who approached Jesus and said, that was a great question that you just, that was a great answer that you gave to that question. But I've got another question for you. What is the greatest command? Now, Jesus had been asked this before. And every time he gives the same answer, it's the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus, as was his custom, went one step further. And the second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands, all the law and the prophets hang. When you get to Mark chapter 12, verse 34, it says that no one else dared to ask him a question. Because every place he went, he answered it so sufficiently that nobody, even though they were trying to ensnare him and trap him, they realized that Jesus could not be stumped. And even though the question stopped coming, the teaching of Christ continued. In verses 34 and following, Jesus begins to talk about the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. 
Oh, you walk around in flowing garbs. You walk around in the finest of clothing, demanding to be greeted in the marketplace. When you go to a banquet, you want the best seat. When you go to the synagogue, you demand the choices of seats in the synagogue. And all the while, you're devouring widows and their homes. You're taking advantage of the poor and the destitute. And Jesus finishes his teaching on the Pharisees by saying that those who practice such things will be severely punished. Stop and think about that. Jesus says that the religious elite that take advantage of other individuals, they will be punished severely for what they do. Then you come to our passage, chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down. This may be the first time in the entire day that Jesus sat down. He'd been walking. He had been talking. He had been teaching. He had been in a floating theological classroom, going from one group to another group to another group, one space to another location to another area. And finally, he sat down, maybe because he was resting, maybe because he was tired, but he sat down. And he watched how people put their money into the temple treasury. What I find interesting is that in the Gospel of Mark, this indicates the conclusion of the public ministry of Jesus. From this point on, Jesus will focus his attention on his disciples only. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, all of his attention, all of his teaching, all of his direction, all of his instruction will be focused upon his disciples. This is the last public demonstration of his ministry. And with that in mind, it would seem that this is a very unique way to end a three-year ministry. You might think that Jesus would use this opportunity to once more talk about the gospel. Or maybe uh, he would talk about the necessity of prayer. Or or maybe he would talk about the commandment to uh, go and make disciples. to, To talk about evangelism and the need for it. For us to be disciples and to make disciples. Maybe you would think that he would offer one more sermon. One more teaching. One more dramatic, um, uh, healing. Maybe, uh, one more recite, uh, uh, restoring sight to the blind. Or maybe raising one more from the dead. You would think that he might do something climactic. Something, uh, that really apex off the top off the charts but instead Jesus talks about money now before the cynic rises up inside of you and says yep there he is a preacher once a preacher always a preacher all preachers at the end of the day they're going to talk about money before the cynic rises up inside of you Let me tell you that I think that in this story, Jesus sets this woman out as an example. She's an example of what the problem is with man-made religion. Man-made religion, because it's based on humanity, always exploits. And it always takes advantage of the needy and the poor. And this woman is seen as the victim of man-made religion. But even in the sense of man-made religion, this woman comes and she does something that nobody else in man-made religion is willing to do. She gives everything unto God. And Jesus ties together giving and living. 
He says there's an inextricable tie that how you give to God reveals something significant about how you live before God. So let me simply ask you, how do you give? How are you when it comes to generosity? I'm not asking you how much do you give. Uh, You need to know, you need to be reminded. I, I don't know how much any individual person or family unit gives. I know the total just like you know the total. I don't know who gives what. But this morning, I think God is asking all of us to entertain the question, how do I give? Do I give fully trusting God? Do I give out of devotion and dedication unto him? Do I give out of sacrifice unto the Lord? Or do I give for the applause of men? Do I give just simply out of obligation? Do I give to get the tax credit at the end of the year? Do I give out of my surplus and out of my self-sufficiency? I've told you before that it's C.S. Lewis who as he tried to wrestle with this idea of generosity and how to give, which leads to how much to give, C.S. Lewis drew this conclusion. I've got to give more than I can spare. My giving ought to pinch a little. There ought to be some things that you would want to do with your money But you can't do with your money because of your generous financial gifts to God's work in God's church. Some things that you would like to do, some things you would like to buy, some places you would like to go, some opportunities you would like to have, but because of your generosity towards God's work in God's church, it pinches you just a bit. C.S. Lewis says, I've got to get to the point that I give more than I can just spare. That's Jesus' way, uh, that's Jesus' words of saying, giving out of wealth. Not just giving what you can spare, but giving everything unto him now before we go any further let me please clarify I don't think that Jesus is giving a command for all of us to empty the bank account and come and give all of our money to the church and then uh, live in poverty destitute mooching off of somebody else in order to survive or simply going home to die I don't think Jesus is saying that I don't think Jesus is saying you got to empty your bank account and give everything but I do think That he's causing us to ask the question, how do I give? Because how I give reveals how I live. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus had had that interaction with the rich young ruler. And he walked away sad because he had great wealth. He could not let go of what was gripping his heart. And here we are just a few chapters later. And the hero of the story is the most unlikely of characters. It is this poor widow. But I think Jesus is doing something even more in this story. I think that Jesus is using this story as a climactic conclusion for his public ministry to point everybody who will listen to Calvary. Because at Calvary, where Jesus will dangle on a cross made of wood, where Jesus will be crucified for your sins and mine, where Jesus in just a matter of few days will go whipped and beaten and bruised beyond all human recognition. Jesus will go to the cross and he does not give some of himself, he gives all of himself. 
Like this poor widow, Jesus gives everything to secure your salvation. Like this widow, God does not give just something to bring about your salvation. He gave the crown jewel of heaven. He emptied the heavenly bank account by sending the personification of God in the flesh. Jesus came to earth and in that demonstration, in that offering, it is God in all of heaven that empties all the coffers and gives everything to secure and seal your salvation. And Jesus is giving us this story to point anybody who will listen to Calvary. Just like this woman gave everything, so God has given everything. And Jesus will be obedient, obedient to death, even death on a despicable cross. And God will give him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As Paul writes his Corinthian correspondence, he says uh, in 2 Corinthians that Jesus, though he is rich, became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. Don't misunderstand the apostle. When he speaks of Jesus and how Jesus emptied himself. How Jesus who is rich with all of eternity's wealth. That Jesus emptied himself and became poor. So that in his poverty, you might become rich. Don't misunderstand what the apostle Paul is saying. He is not guaranteeing financial richness. But what he is saying is that in Christ, we will be rich. I came this morning to tell you, church, that I am rich in mercy because of Christ. I am rich in forgiveness because of Christ. I am rich in love because of Christ. I am rich in hope because of Christ. I am rich and you are too. Why? Because Jesus who was rich made himself poor so that we who are in poverty may become rich in Christ. In Jesus Christ we have everything that we need. In Jesus Christ it is the emptying of heaven's treasury so that we would have salvation. Jesus looks at this poor widow and says what she did today I will do on Friday. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who are completely sinful may be declared righteous in God's sight. The innocent one became guilty so that we who are guilty may be declared innocent. The one who is rich became poor so that we who are spiritually poor may become spiritually rich. There's a song that I grew up singing in church. All to Jesus I surrender, and all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. This morning I wonder, friend, is there something that you need to surrender to Jesus, maybe you need to surrender control of your bank account to Christ. I'm not telling you you got to empty your bank account and give all your money to the church, but I am telling you that Jesus needs to be in control of your bank account 
And I think there are far too many of us that give Jesus what we can spare, give Jesus what we can afford, and then we cling to everything else. And we say, Jesus, I want control of every other dollar. And my friend, this morning, I wonder if there's somebody here listening to my voice and what Jesus is saying to you is relinquish your control unto me. There may be somebody here that needs to surrender the control of your bank account unto the Lord. But I got a sneaking suspicion that there's some of us here who need to surrender something far more valuable than money to Christ. There's somebody here who needs to surrender their heart to the Lord. And your heart is far more valuable than your bank account. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to surrender their past to the Lord. Their present crisis, their fear of the future. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to surrender their spouse unto the Lord. Because your husband, your wife is far more valuable than money. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to surrender their children unto the Lord. Oh God, you've given them to us on loan and we give them back to you. Some of us have children that are still at home. Others may have children that literally are in the far country. They are running from God, running from the truth that you so faithfully planted inside of them and you worry about them and you grieve for them this morning. Just surrender them once again unto the Lord. Just surrender your children unto Christ and say, Lord, my son, my daughter, they belong to you. Maybe somebody here needs to surrender a sickness or an upcoming surgery or a setback unto the Lord. Maybe somebody just needs to surrender their employment or lack of employment unto Jesus. Whatever it is this morning, is there anything that you are clinging to, anything that you are clutching, anything that you are holding on to, that this morning what Jesus is telling you through Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, is all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, and in his presence I will daily live, so I surrender it all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. Because friend, how we give to God reveals something significant about how we live before God. And you and I have things in our lives that are far more valuable than money. And today, all to Jesus. All to Jesus. All to Jesus, we surrender. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation, and I'm just convinced that there just might be some people that are clinging to their cash instead of their Christ. There may be some people that are clinging to their family instead of you, some that may be clinging to the American dream or the job instead of depending upon you, and some of us uh, may be doing our religious things for the applause and the attention of men instead of just doing it out of adoration of our God who has given everything so that we might be saved. So Lord, this morning this altar's open for us to declare that you are a good God. This morning ministers are here to receive those who come by faith and desire church membership or desire to be saved or desire prayer. 
And Lord, this morning, as we conclude this service, we just come to declare that you are a good God. And you emptied heaven's bank account so that we might be saved. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving everything for us. Help us to give everything we have at our disposal back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.